I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shifters who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. Today, I'm here with our second white guest of the podcast, uh, someone who I'm really interested in speaking to. We're speaking today with Glennon Doyle. Glennon is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Love Warrior, a 2016 Oprah's Book Club selection, as well as the New York Times bestseller, Carry On Warrior. She's the founder and president of Together Rising, a nonprofit organization that has raised $15.5 million for women, families, and children in crisis. Glennon is an activist, a speaker, and a thought leader who believes that a love warrior's journey is to rush towards her pain and to allow her pain to become her power. She lives in Florida with her wife and her three children. Welcome to the show, Glennon. Thank you, Layla. I'm very excited to be having this conversation with you. And just for um, our listeners, um, just just so our listeners know, you and I have had a, a couple of conversations now before we've hit record on this podcast because we both understand in the work that I do around me and white supremacy and white feminism and the work that you are doing in your own privilege that this and anytime I have a white guest on that the conversation is different to when I have guests who are uh, people of color Um, but I feel very strongly in bringing on a few um, as you said, when we had our conversation, a few token white people (laughs) (laughs) to have these conversations um, because they're important. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate you inviting me here. I've listened to your other podcasts, of course, as you know, and um, Eva, as we spoke about, um, let's get awkward. Let's just take the risk and um, (laughs) jump in. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, let's jump in. So our first question that goes out to all guests, who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned familial or societal who have influenced you on your journey? Yeah, so I thought about this question when I was listening to your other podcasts. And at first, all these, you know, famous people popped into my mind. And then I really started thinking about my parents. Um, I think when I think about truly who has deeply influenced the way I move in the world, it's the two of them. They were both educators. Um, my mother was a Spanish teacher and then a guidance counselor. And my dad was a football coach and an English teacher and then a principal. Um, and it was just understood in my family that what you do um, with your life and yourself is you just serve children, basically. I mean, that was the whole entire, uh, my whole entire family's mission um, and passion. And so when I graduated from college, I went into teaching cause that's just what we did. Um, I worked in the same type of school my parents did. They, they worked in, um, largely 
underserved uh, schools and um, worked their butts off. And it was never, I, I don't ever remember them talking about it. They just did it, you know, it was just a way of being. Um, and so I spent most of my career before I started writing, I was a teacher. I was a third grade teacher. Um, and I worked in right outside of Washington, DC at what we called a title one school. So almost all of my kids were recent immigrants. And, um, I think at one point I had seven languages in my class and we also had full inclusion. So we had some nonverbal kids. Um, and I remember, so the amazing thing about education is being part of education is you just really get to see firsthand how systems that affect human beings, livelihoods and future are, are so rigged, you know? I mean, we did um, this, when I started teaching is when we, when the standardized testing went crazy, where in our uh, country where basically everything just started to become based upon how you performed on standardized tests. Hmm. And I just remember, you know, these children that I had in my classroom were so brilliant and um, really, I was a, um, was a little biased, but I would say ha having to be much more brilliant than most children in the system because they were coming into a brand new culture and a brand new place and having to navigate all of it. Um, and, then, Layla, the county would put these freaking tests in front of them. Now, if you can imagine about like, and the performance on that test would determine everything. Like they'll say it doesn't, but it does. That's when kids start getting tracked. That's when, um, and, and, you know, imagine your child going to another country, not speaking the language at all. And then, you know, two months later, somebody putting a test in front of them in that language to determine their intelligence pretty much and their, their future potential. So that's when I really started figuring. So my first book, Layla, which I was just thinking about this morning because I got a $7 royalty check last week from it, mm. um, was not carry on warrior. And it wasn't love warrior. My first published book was I wrote an education book. I got together with my friend, Amy, who taught then with me. And we figured out this like program, this way of teaching that would help our kids kind of really kind of beat the test. Um, and it turned into a book. So my first book was actually called Test Talk. And it was about um, helping children who didn't have the language and, you know, didn't have the economic privileges that would allow them to have the background knowledge that these tests take, require, um, to beat the test. And so, I don't know, I just always understood that it wasn't about helping it. There was never in my family any kind of, of, of um, idea that what we did was help other people. It was just about like leveling the playing field. Like what you do is you use what you've been given, which now we would call privilege, but back then I had no freaking clue about that word, to kind of get inside systems and um, do what you can to, to level the playing field. I feel like that's the ethos of my family. Wow. That's, that's an incredible story. And I've watched a number of interviews of yours and listened to a number. And that's the first time I ever heard about that book. So. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> talks about test talk, Layla. It could be because it sold maybe six copies and they were mostly my um, But that's, a, that's, that's a, a really incredible story. And I'm not surprised to hear that the 
ancestors who have most influenced you are your parents because I remember reading Love Warrior and your family were such a huge were and are uh, such a huge um, part of your life um, and such a huge influence um, in the person that you you have become um, and so it's really fascinating to hear about how they're edu- they were educators um, and how you yourself now with the with the work that you are doing you may not be a teacher anymore in a school but you're certainly you're certainly um, teaching a lot of people a lot of things about you know how to live and how to love and how to lead Thank you. And I think what I love most about my parents is that, and I think these are all my favorite types of people. This is you. This is all the people that I respect the most in this space are, they're teachers, but the reason that they're teachers is because they're students. Right. Like my parents are, were teachers their whole life, but they are a relentlessly, you know, what they have, they, they call beginner's mind. Like, my mom is 65 now and she is just constant. I think I told you in one of our other talks, I came down the stairs at my house. She was visiting a couple months ago and she literally had out maybe six books and this huge pad of paper where she was trying to understand more about the civil rights era. She had learned it as we all did learn it one way in school. And now she's trying to unlearn what she's learned. She's planning um, trips. She's just such a a relentless student. Mm. Um, And for sure, that's what I respect. I think that, you know, more, but more than the teaching is really just the idea that the only teachers I trust are the ones who are, who are never sure (laughs) of what they know, but they are just constantly trying to stay open and learn more. Right. Right. And, you know, um, we talked about, you know, and, most people probably have seen your, if they follow you, they've seen your Oprah Winfrey interview. They know how, um, they, they probably know the story of, of Love Warrior, which uh, at the time when you wrote it was about your marriage, right? And saving your marriage. But by the time you were on Oprah, you were like, the marriage is actually over. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> Oopsie daisy. Sorry, Oprah. Um, <laughs> but that was an interesting time. Yeah. Right? So, um, so first of all, I just want to briefly touch there for people who don't know and not familiar with that book. And as I said, that's actually, I remember reading it in 2016. It was one of my favorite books um, because of, not because I could relate in any way to the experiences that you had gone through because we have lived very different lives, have had very different experiences. Um, but within a few pages, it had made me cry. And the mm. reason why was because I it was one of the first times that I can really remember reading a book by a writer who was so committed to telling the truth um, without sort of trying to make it nice or pretty um, Mm -hmm. to make it something more presentable. It was just like, this is the truth, the ugly, or or as you say, brutal. Yeah. I mean, truly that is what I learned in sobriety. I mean, the most important thing to me in the entire world is my sobriety. Um, And so, you know, I don't know if you know that I started writing sort of based on what I saw and learned in recovery. Um, 
the first, I, I found out I was pregnant um, after 15 years of just being so completely lost to alcohol and drug addiction, food addiction too. Um, and I found out I was pregnant one day. It was actually on Mother's Day. I yeah. would not have known that then. Um, and I was on the floor holding a pregnancy test and something just clicked in me. And I called my sister and she picked me up off the bathroom floor and took me to my first recovery meeting. And Layla, I just sat in that meeting and listened to these people tell their stories. And I just felt like, oh my God, these are the first honest people I have ever met in my life. Mm. They were just, you know, they were just, they were telling, they were saying things, telling stories, um, talking about family secrets that they just kept, you know, in their hearts and minds, just corroding themselves. Um, they talked about relationships they'd hurt and people they'd hurt and thoughts and feelings that I thought were only my darkest thoughts and feelings, you know? Right. right. And there was something about the telling of it, the sharing of it that you could feel was freeing them. Um, and so I thought, oh, if I could live this way, maybe I could do it sober. <laughs> You know, if I didn't feel like I had to pretend and hide all the time and act like everything was fine. Mm. And so at the time, Layla, I had three children. I was just dripping with children. And this is like fast forward 10 years. I didn't have time to go to meetings anymore. Like I couldn't even get out of my house. Right. And that's when I started writing. I thought maybe I could just use the voice that I use in those meetings on the page. Um, and that's how my writing started. I just started doing that every morning. Wow. And it's, it's amazing because we never know, first of all, we, we never know how the darkest place that we're in can end up becoming like the real source of our power. Yes. Um, and that always like blows my mind that mm -hmm. where we often grow from the most is where we have experienced the most pain. Um, yeah. And I know that you describe, you'd say, you talk about how a love warrior's journey is to rush toward her, to toward her pain and mm -hmm. to allow that pain to become her power. Um, but it's so counterintuitive. Absolutely. Well, and we're taught in a million different ways. Skip your pain. You don't need your pain. That's what all of consumer culture is about. You know, mm -hmm. don't feel your pain. You just really, you're not depressed. You just need this new pair of jeans, you know, just like this constant hamster wheel of, consuming so we don't have to feel um, when actually so much of what we need to become next is inside the pain of now. Right. right? Like, and, and also the things about ourselves that we avoid yeah. are like, I, you know, I've so I deal with so much, so much mental health um, challenges and always will and always have. I mean, I think that's, I thought my problem was that I was an over drinker and an overeater, but really my problem was that I was, depressed and anxious and I was self-medicating. Right. Right. So, but listen, this depression, this sensitivity thing, like I've just always been an incredibly sensitive person. I think you are too. Right. Mm -hmm. Would you just, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I'm turned inside out. Yes. Turned inside out. That's yes. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But listen, that sensitivity that led me to addiction in the first part of my life is the exact same sensitivity that makes me a good artist now. Mm. And can I, I just want to like press on this point because what I'm hearing you say is 
the thing about the things about ourselves that we are judging, that we are abandoning, that we are um, feeling shame around, we don't have to um, get rid of them in order to become whatever that thing that we think we should become, a better person, a perfect person, whatever that, that more whole, that that thing that we're actually running away from, trying to change about ourselves. It's yeah. not about abandoning it. Mm -hmm. It's about yeah. seeing how, and I think this is, you know, because we live in a, in a world and in a culture that is, you know, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal. There are so many, um, uh, characteristics and kind of things that we're like, well, that's not valuable in this kind of a society. Mm -hmm. Well, and think about feelings, any sort of feelings, mm -hmm. like any sort of true feelings are very inconvenient to our culture. Right. right. I mean, why, why is women's anger so unbelievably suppressed and oppressed and, and, and shamed and, you know, I can't, I can't tell you, I'm sure for you too, how many women come to me and say, I'm so angry. What's wrong with me? Mm. And, and I always say, listen, there's only two types of women that I respect right now. One women who are angry and two women who are in an active coma. Like you should be angry, right? This is like the reason why we are um, told not to be angry is because angry women tend to demand change. Right. So of course that we, we would be trained to, when we feel angry, to think that there's something wrong with us instead of thinking that's a signal that there's something wrong. Right. Right. And, and, you know, when I began, when I started my kind of journey as a, well, first as a coach and then later as a, a writer, and I have been immersed in the personal growth, the spiritual, the, the wellness field, that community, these feelings that we're talking about, anger, um, uh, pain, you know, like sitting in the pain, being in the anger, not making it wrong was something I saw all around me being really judged as bad, being judged as things that we need to overcome, that we need to get mm -hmm. past, that we need to not indulge in. Um, but I have seen certainly in the work that I'm doing that we can't do this work without those things. Right. It's like fuel, Right. I mean, I certainly feel that there is a, a way we can, I think when anger becomes completely inactive right, and just stays in anger, then that just becomes another hiding place. Right. I mean, I've seen that happen. I've been, I've done that. I have too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It becomes very comfy. Almost, yeah. Well, I almost lost myself, mm -hmm. you know, because yeah. there's, it, it, I mean, there's the, on one end of the spectrum, there's the like hyper positive, positive vibes only, only love and light, right? And that's, <laughs> that's toxic, but mm -hmm. it's also the nonstop anger where we don't give ourselves space for anything else except to be angry is, um, it just for me is not a reflection of our whole humanity because we have access to all the feelings. Um, but now the, you know, if we're, if we're going to be um, truth tellers, we also have to understand that depending on our positionality and our privilege, we might just be, we might just be in a constant state of anger because mm -hmm. of racism, because of homophobia, because of whatever um, uh, marginalized identities that you hold that mm -hmm. 
we're in a society where you're, that thing is still is constantly being stoked. You can't decide, I don't want to experience racism today. That's right. That's right. right. And yeah. so I, I think it's so important to have empathy for when we're seeing people who are in anger for us not to say, well, that's not very healthy for them to always be angry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I hear yeah. that. Because we and don't know the idea yeah. that people of privilege, <clears throat> you know, when, when the anger is burning me up too much, I can just decide that I need a break from it. Right. <laughs> um, right. And that is certainly a privilege. Mm. Glennon, when you started your uh, writing career, you were, um, and I don't know if you kind of self-named yourself to this or this was a title you were given, but you were kind of under the title of Christian Mommy Blogger. Okay, Layla, <laughs> let me just say something about that. Please okay? do, because I've, I've been so curious. To know. God help me, it will be on my freaking to- tombstone. <laughs> okay, nobody, nobody called me a Christian Mommy Blogger until I announced that I was marrying Abby. This is when this started, okay? Wow. Somebody, somebody put it on some news, newspaper, the first newspaper or the whatever, internet paper, that put out the story, put out Abby Wambach dating or marrying Christian mommy blogger, okay? <laughs> and I was like, what the? Wow, so, yeah. So the reason why they did that is because that was the most shocking thing you mm. could put with Abby Wambach, mm-hmm. right? Like that, would, that was clickbait because, oh, a Christian mommy is marrying a woman? Like, what? So that was picked up by everyone else on earth and forevermore I will be named Glennon Doyle Christian mommy blogger, which is so insulting in so many ways because you know, like my friend Rachel said, if you have a uterus and you're a writer, they will call you a blogger, like a mommy blogger. Right. Um, so yeah, it's a family joke. Everyone in my family calls me Christian mommy blogger now. It will never end. Well, <laughs> I, 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 that last part made me laugh. But also, I feel very strongly about um, uh, each of us as human beings having the right to name ourselves. And mm. that is not a name that you have given yourself. No. Yeah. No. So no. Well, Abby did have a sweatshirt made, made that said, says Christian mommy blogger's wife. <laughs> so we're rolling with it, Layla. We're rolling. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, okay. So you, but you started your career um, not talking about race, oppression, social justice. Um, y- you, um, we're having hard conversations for sure, truthful conversations for sure. And then at some point, something happened. What happened? <laughs> yeah. So um, I would say that, you know, Together Rising started a few years after I started my blog. And, um, you know, Together Rising kind of felt like my work in the schools. It was just like our mission was to go into um, systems and um, tell the right stories and um, divert funds, you know, from to, to people that needed it and rock the boat, you know, on the ground, right? Mm. And that's the way that I was taught to do 
it wasn't activist, it wasn't anything, it was the way you do life, right? Um, and then, but we weren't out there at marches. Anyway, I was sitting with my, one of my, both of my daughters one day on the couch, um, and I was showing them pictures of, of, uh, of a civil rights march. And my youngest daughter pointed to a white woman in the march. Um, they're, they're half Asian, but they're, both of them look, both of my daughters look white. My son does not. Um, so my youngest daughter pointed to a white woman and said, um, mommy, look, would we have been marching with them? And I almost said, yeah, like my reaction was to say, absolutely, we would have. And then my older daughter, Tish, kind of interrupted my sentence and said, no, Emma, we wouldn't have been marching with them then. I mean, we're not marching with them now. Mm. Um, which, and you know, they just went on with their business. Um, but it really was a moment for me you know, I would call it a sobering moment because I think of everything in terms of recovery, um, which is a moment in which you realize that you might not actually be the kind of person that you imagined yourself to be. Right. Right. And I think we have sobering moments, you know, most of us who have been living lives of privilege in this country are having sobering moments about our country, you know, like, oh, our country is not what we imagined it to be. Mm. Um, because when you, like you said, you almost said yes. And yeah. so that, that says to me that before your daughter said no, and this is why, that your self-image was, for want of a better word, where I'm one of the good whites. I'm a good white person. Mm -hmm. I would have been there. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so... So then this is, you know, sent me into a, you know, what I do when I um, have these sobering moments is just start reading. That's what I do. Um, trying to unlearn whatever it was that made me have the wrong idea um, and uh, start to try to relearn. And, and I do remember laying in my bed and reading one night um, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letters from the Birmingham jail. And I remember reading the greatest stumbling block to freedom is not the Ku Klux Klanner. It's the white moderate who is more committed to order than to justice. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that is when there were there was like some language to go with this moment that I had just had with my daughters, um, that this thing that I was had a name, right? <laughs> this was not a new invention, this sort of white person in America who feels that they are good and um, so imagines themselves to be on the side of civil rights without doing or a thing about it. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a, a turning, a turning point for me. And so I, you know, have a, a platform and a, a community that is, uh, very white because a lot of people are coming into my work 
through the me and white supremacy uh, work that I'm doing, Mm-hmm. Many people are having that turning point moment that you've just described, um, mm-hmm. but many of them are not Glennon Doyle with a huge platform, mm-hmm. right? So they're having their moment privately. Um, the way that they're processing me and white supremacy or whatever, whatever things that they're starting to learn, they're getting to process it in the privacy of their own homes and the privacy of their own community, you are not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. So there's yeah. a, there's a, there's a difference. And so the reason why I wanted to talk about this is when I first started the very first time that I wrote or spoke publicly about um, white supremacy was in a viral letter that I wrote called, I need to talk to spiritual white women about white supremacy. And it was mm-hmm. a, an open letter that was specifically directed towards um, what would I, I would call spiritual white women leaders. So mm-hmm. um, white women leaders who had a platform whose work was about healing or transforming, coaching, um, wellness, and generally, you know, changing people's lives and changing the world. And they would fall under that category of the white moderate that you were talking about from Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter. Um, and so, you know, I wasn't talking to the KKK. I was right. talking to um, a white, liberal, progressive white people who would definitely not class themselves as racist, um, who would definitely probably call themselves allies um, and who saw themselves as being on, if we're looking at it in a binary way, even though it's not binary, but who would count themselves as being on the good side as opposed to being on the bad side, right? Yes. Um, And what I wanted to do in that letter is to create accountability or to highlight the fact that as someone with privilege and a platform, you are seeing what is happening, but you're not saying anything. You're not doing anything. Yeah. Um, you, have, you have taken it upon yourself and seen it as your responsibility, not just to have this awakening and have this conversation in your families, but to also bring it into your platform. Yes. Um, which, first of all, I want to say, well, first of all, I want to ask, what has that been like for you? Um, and then secondly, um, and then secondly, I want to ask, what has it been, how, well, let me re-ask, how are you navigating when you get it wrong? Mm. Yeah, okay. Um, so I guess what I would say, first of all, is that I actually did do a whole lot of processing might not maybe it doesn't seem like it but I actually did do a whole lot of private and do do a whole lot of private processing Mm -hmm. because I was so freaking confused in the beginning and I'm still very confused but um I think we talked about this a little bit before Layla on an earlier call but to me it really did feel like uh, sort of like when I got sober um just uh, kind of waking up to a reality um, that I had been completely and sort of, and deliberately unaware of. Right. Um, and I, I feel like, and I see in the other women, white women who are, um, bringing themselves to this experience who are sort of 
determined to to wake up to become racially sober in this country, um, there's there's a distinctive pattern to it. You know, um, at first, you know, you start to read, you start to follow black women, you start to follow Latino women, you start to follow indigenous women, you start to see things completely differently from your little perspective. Um, and then you start to have feelings, right? And thoughts. And um, I think because white women, because I have been so used to having my feelings and thoughts centered in situations, in most situations, um, we feel entitled to share them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Have you noticed that, Layla? <laughs> I don't know uh, what you could be um, talking about, Glenn. <laughs> right. No. Maybe someday you'll notice it, Layla. Um, so, and, and so that's so, okay. So if you've done enough like reading and concentrating and paying attention, then you know that those spaces you're going to to share those feelings are actually on many levels not for that. But in, in of course, the most basic levels is that you, Layla, are not even, this is not, you are finding a lane here to speak to white women because your intention and goal is to make things better and safer for black people and people of color. And, and so... So it's not even really, it's not for our feelings, right? We're just right. learning. Um, and so what I have noticed when you say, how do I respond when I get it wrong is um, I think what happens is that white women think sometimes that what this work is about is knowing how to say the right thing. Yes. Um, and so what happens is that, okay, so if I'm holding a mug of, of tea and, and my mug gets bumped, then tea comes out, right? Right. If I'm holding a mug of coffee then, and I get bumped, then coffee comes out. Um, if, if I'm out saying something, doing the work, and I get bumped, which I will, and I haven't done the work to become something different on the, the inside, then what will spill out of me is the person who hasn't done the work underneath, um, which is what you see when, um, when a white person like me comes out and says the things, and then somebody else, a woman of color, comes back and says, that's not it. Mm -hmm. And then the white woman has gotten bumped. What comes out is, I'm trying, don't attack me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all of the things that would not come out, would not spill out, had there been enough underground work done before speaking out. Right. Am I saying that in the right way? It's like, it's like we're trying to say the right thing before we've done the work to become the right thing. Right. Because if I get bumped, listen, Layla, I have... I mean, I have all the feelings. I have so many feelings. <laughs> um, but I do know enough to know that those feelings are not um, relevant to the situation I've just entered into. Mm. Right? 
So like those feelings maybe should be shared with my dog and not humans and the interwebs, right? So um, I would say that I think that it's, that the, anybody, any white people that I've seen um, that I respect in this area are probably doing like 95% of all of their work silently by listening, mm -hmm. by learning. And then there's like this 5% that's like a outward thing, right? And then that 5% is usually because it's been requested. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Like it's usually because they've been invited into a space to speak, not because um, they're constantly volunteering themselves. Like, it's like somebody said, fine, I see you as an ally, come in here and say something, as opposed to like, here I am, I'm an ally, I'm saying all the things. Right, and, and this, you know, something that I talk about often is um, the difference between showing up as an ally and showing up as a white savior. Mm-hmm, yes. And as someone who, when you hold privilege um, and you haven't done the work, so you don't understand that the way that you're viewing uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color is, is as being beneath you, is as being kind of like they don't, they're, we're, that we're not capable, we don't have the same level of intelligence, capability, then you rush in as the savior to do the thing that you think that you're supposed to be doing. Because it makes sense based on your understanding, right? Until you've dug deeper to do the work. And I think what you're saying is so important for people who are white, who hold white privilege, who are listening in to understand that, first of all, the work, most of the work is internal. Yes. Because if you move from a space of doing work out in the world, but you haven't done the inner work, absolutely, as you've just said, what comes out is all of those things that you've been trying to hide. Yeah. Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And Layla, I think that's what I really do. Like when I see that stuff play out, that's why people get so upset about it. Because <clears throat> what, what I see is not that people really get upset that you said the wrong thing. It's always the what happens next. Okay. Yes. It's like you said the wrong thing or you said something that's off or you said something that just reveals that you haven't done enough work yet or whatever it is. And then it's the bump afterwards, right? So it's the, you get challenged on it. And then what spills out is um, why this, this, this sense of like, well, you should be grateful for what I've just done. Right. Why are you hurting my feelings? And that's the part that makes people upset. Not because they're being, it's not even because they're being emotional. It's because that is proof that the underground work wasn't done first. Because right. had the underground work been done, the response to the bump would have been different. Right. And as the work as you continue to do the work, right, because this is lifelong work, um, you also don't re reach a point of never reacting. No. Right? <laughs> you no. reach a point of, ta-da, now I am the perfect white ally. I have it all together. I've made it. And, you know, I've, I made this very clear to you when I invited you onto the podcast and, and with our, 
with our other white guest who's preceded this um, conversation as well, you know, I said, I'm not inviting you on because I see you as an exceptional white person who has somehow surpassed other white people in this work. That's not a belief I hold and it, I'm, I make it very clear and I want it to be very clear that that's not the reason why I'm inviting who I invite on. Um, but I do invite on people who I see in the work, in the awkwardness of the work, and who I hope when they come on will be able to have truthful and honest conversations about what the realities of it. Um, you yeah. talk about in your in in Love Warrior, um, you realize that each one of us was going out into the world, that you were going out into the world with this representative of yourself not your real self, but this perf perfect version that you felt like that's the, that's the version of me that is acceptable out in the world. And, yes. it's, and it's a mask. And so, you know, we're talking about good ancestorship, right? And we're talking about creating a world that is different. Those masks need to go. That's right. Well, and it's so... God, it's so scary and um, necessary, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I just, I, one of the stories that I think is so interesting that my dad told me is that he, he lives in a, in a heavily segregated fishing town in rural Virginia. And um, they, a few months ago, there, there was some, no, actually, it's a couple of years ago, there was um, a call to the community from a church to, for the, for the white people in that area to come together to start talking about this stuff, okay? I, I don't know what the exact invitation was. And my parents were like, okay, we're gonna talk. And so they went to this meeting and, and, and so, and, and the, the woman stood up and she just started talking about outreach, okay? She just kept using the word outreach the woman who was leading the meeting, and she said what they were going to do actually was to create care packages, all of these white people, to send to the black school mm. in the area. That was the answer to, to the, their answer. And my dad, which I, he stood up and bless his heart, I've never heard him talk like this in, until he told me the story, but he stood up and he said, I'm not here to make care packages. I was raised in a very racist town and I have all of these thoughts and feelings about black people and I know now that they're not true and I also know that they're really dangerous and I don't know how to get them out of me and I want them out of me and I just need to talk about that and Jesus I just felt like that if 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 a lot of if 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 white people would be honest, I feel like they might say stuff like that, you know? That's a scary thing to say, but it can be true on some levels. You know, people, Leila, like when I was a teacher, I learned that people can't understand a new concept, like unless it's attached to an other, another concept, mm, right? That's mm -hmm. how you learn, like you learn, you can only learn if you're linking it to something else. Which is why background knowledge is so important. And, you know, when I talk to women about, you know, the misogyny in the air, and how, you know, women with eating disorders and how all of this, these messages that we've been pumped about to about women are in the air. They're programmed into us and we have to deprogram ourselves. Nobody says to me, well, I can't admit I hold those feelings because I'm a good person. Right. But we say, but that's how we feel about racism. Like, 
this stuff is pumped into the air of our culture and our systems, but we say, well, I can't admit I'm affected by it because I'm a good person. It doesn't make any sense. Right. It has nothing to do with being good or bad. Um, it has to do with living in a culture where this poison is pumped through us from the moment we're born. Mm-hmm. Just like the misogyny, you know, like why can't we admit that they're, or think of them in similar ways. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. I just feel like, you know, when you talk about representatives, it's so much, isn't it tidy to like walk into a place and be like, Oh, we're just here to help. We'll make care packages. Right. What the hell? Right. Um, and, and Layla, that conversation ended there. Like not a single person in that room where my dad was like, it was just dead silence. Mm. And then, and then they carried on with the care packages. Which tells you that it was about self-serving the self and, uh, and, and alleviating that um, feeling of guilt and shame. Um, it wasn't about Black, Indigenous, people of color. Of course not. No, check right. the box, go home, be done with it. Don't, right. don't, go, don't go deep. Don't go deep. Glennon, I know you've been um, working through the Mean White Supremacy Workbook. Yes. And I'm really curious to hear about how that experience has been for you. What's been coming up for you in what you've been learning about yourself? Well, I think I told, so submit this story. Um, so, well, first of all, I just feel, I mean, you know that I have, I don't know if there's a better, when women, you know, when white women come to me, they say, where do I start? Um, and I just always point them directly to you because I believe that that workbook for me, I don't know. It's something about, first of all, the way that you synthesize information. Um, but it's also the, the, the questions that you ask in the journaling, like there are places where I've seen a lot of that information, but never the way that you present it and never with the journaling. So I think I told you that I started the workbook and read what you wrote about um, don't, that it's very important to do the journaling parts, right? But Layla, I'm a writer. I write all day. I was like, you know what? I bet I can do this without the journaling. So I started and then got to page whatever it's on really early on, three or four, and there was this direct, a paragraph that you wrote that was like, and there will be some of you who will think, I don't have to do the journaling. I'm special. I don't blah, blah, blah do the journaling. So then I thought, Oh my God, Layla is on my shoulder. <laughs> so, so I, well, and thank God because the journaling is where uh, it's all the deep stuff. It's where the stuff comes up that you don't necessarily want to think about. Um, you know, it's so easy for this to turn into doing the right thing, saying the right thing. Um, and, and I, and it's, it's tempting for me to think of it in terms of learning, right? right. Which is also very right. an outward thing. It's outward. It's yes. like. To think just, of it as self-development, personal development. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll just read this. I'll just, I'll listen to Layla's podcast. I'll do, I do, you know, all of that, when, when I think what your work does for me is make me realize that it's also, it's about excavation. 
You know, it's not just, it's not just input. It's going deep inside and pulling out what's there and looking at it, which actually reminds me a lot of recovery too, but I will drop that thread. Um, So I, I think that's what your work does for me. It's somehow from the outside, like, um, turns in your work from the outside turns into what is actually like an archaeological dig inside um which by the way Layla I really believe is the only way way towards growth in any area I mean that's what that's what AA did for me right it was like oh no 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 we're not moving forward we're not moving forward until we get that our out until we get that out from this like dark place on the inside and pull it out where we can look at it in the light. That's how we move forward. And the other thing about your, I don't know how this works with your work, but in some other work I'm allowed, I'm, I'm more able to stay in my head. Mm. Um, whereas whatever's going on with that journal is helping me get into what I, what I'm not even conscious of. Does that make sense? It's like, whereas most of this stuff is, um, I can tell you all the things in my brain. Like I know why all this makes sense, but that's not where we need to get to actually. Where we need to get to is the subconscious. Um, and so I think that is what's happening with all of the thousands of women doing this, um, doing me and white supremacy, is that it's, um, it's not just teaching, it's excavating them. Thank you for, for saying all of that because I know we have um, surpassed 70,000 downloads of the workbook. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, That's yes. wild. Yes, it's, it's, really, it's really wild. And I don't know that 70,000 people are actually doing the work. Mm-hmm. And I can tell who has and who hasn't from when they've downloaded and, and the way that they talk to me. Mm. I can tell instantly who's downloaded the workbook and either maybe just read through it or maybe just did a couple of journaling days or maybe it's still kind of somewhere in their download folder versus someone who um, has the discipline and the commitment to really be honest and truthful with themselves and work through it step by step by step, right? Mm -hmm. You can tell the difference. because, and, and I mean, I can tell the difference. I don't know if you have white privilege that you can tell the difference, but I can tell the difference for sure, because there is so much more awareness and, and um, kind of a more conscious way of being in the space, of being in conversation, of approaching. You know, I, I received an email today from somebody. They started off with, thank you for your workbook. I uh, just completed it. Um, but then the rest of the email tells me that they didn't. <laughs> because tell me some of like how do you know yeah tell me some right. of the so ways. i know so i know because they come out of the gate starting to with centering themselves they mm-hmm. want me to know about all the things that they are doing so they're mm-hmm. so they are not focused on that this work actually isn't about me um, mm-hmm. the entire email was about them. The entire email was, there was also a lot of, um, what I call white exceptionalism. Mm, why they're the one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So all of this work that they're doing out in the world and, um, how it's about other white people and not them. Um, but they don't, it, it's not framed in that way. 
but as I'm mm-hmm. reading through it, I can, I can see it. Um, and there is also a way of being too, what's the word? It feels like being too familiar. Yep. Um, and that's an energy that you can feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it tells me why that's an issue is it tells me that they don't understand the privilege dynamic, the privilege power dynamic between them as a white person and me as a black person. Mm. Mm-hmm. So they're talking to me as if me and that me and they are on, uh, sorry, they and I are on the same level playing field. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's just so many signs like that, you know, I can tell by the way someone is taking up space. I can tell by the way that they are making themselves the ex- exception or making other people Oh, it's about other white people. It's not about me. I can tell by the way it's all about um, themselves, their family, their work, and not about who this work is actually for. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing that you say even like taking up the space in the room, because like when you say that, that makes me just think of this idea of you you can see if the coffee or the tea has changed like you it's not even always about saying what's said it's right. just like the beingness of people like yes <laughs> exactly it's like it's like you can't do all of this or, or maybe you can I don't know but I I'm not sure how you do all of this and unlearn all of this and listen and then not just walk around with a very deep humility. Thank you. Yes, exactly. And we're not talking about shame. And we're no. not talking about, uh, um, what's the word? Like, we're not talking about um, dimming your light or making no. yourself small or, you know, none of that. But there is, if you're letting this work really hit you and go within you, then you can't but not mm-hmm. have a deep sense of humility. Yeah. And it's, and, and I think some people like you can't fake that humility either because when you're faking that humility, it comes out as like self-flagellation or shame, right. Right. which is just another way to take up more space. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. It's just, that is so centering, right? Cause it's like, I feel bad. Make me feel better about this. That's not, that's not at all. That's the opposite of what we're talking about. It's just like this, it's a beingness. It's a deep humility that just, I don't know. Mm. I don't know what you're um, Glennon, what I find really, I guess, grounding about you is that no matter what you're talking about, you bring the principles that guide you um, back to your journey with sobriety. Mm-hmm. So sobriety and that journey saved your life, essentially, right? Um, yeah. But you bring it, you you manage to bring it into any conversation we're having, right? <laughs> and the reason why I like that is, you know, where who you are in one situation is who you are in in every situation, mm-hmm. and. It feels like to me that because you have this guiding principle, these guiding principles about how you're going to show up, no matter what the situation is, that you have like a, um, a you always have a way to come home back to yourself. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
no matter what's no matter what has been presented to you, no matter what experience you're going through, no matter what's showing up in your family life, no matter what's showing up in your in your career, right? That there's mm-hmm. a way that you're able to come back to yourself. Thank you for that. It does feel like that. It feels like what saved my life. <clears throat> and I mean that very literally. I mean, when I found out I was pregnant, I was definitely didn't have long to go. I was so, so sick, Layla. Mm. Um, and, and what saved my life was a commitment to no more shame and no more secrets. Um, and then what I learned in those basements, which is just, you know, and the reason it applies to this is what I learned in those basements was like you, if you're keeping a secret and they're always like family secrets, you know, that if you're keeping a secret, it will corrode you. It will, it will be the thing that you, that keeps you from doing all of the other things you were meant to do. It will affect you on every level. It will cellularly just change you and change your life and change all of your relationships, these secrets. And so we speak them. But the other thing, Layla, that is so amazing about recovery is, you know, it's like an ideal family. So everybody talks about family, family, but actually most people can't even be real with their real families. Right. <laughs> I mean, every time somebody says to me, I want to be real, but I can't even be real with my family. I'm like, look, family is the final frontier. Right. All right. <laughs> yes. We can, nobody we can be can as real, we can be as real as we want to like hundreds and thousands of people out on the internet, but not with our family. No way. I turn into a 12 year old. Like I'm like shoving cereal in my mouth again. Like it's just, it's like, that's where our roles are most firmly entrenched. Yeah. Right. And being real is, is not playing a role. Cause when we're playing a role, we're not bringing our whole selves to the table. Right. And so families kind of, that's how their, their little microcosm, they, that's how they survive is that everybody doesn't bring their full self to the table, right? right? So in recovery is where I found this ideal family, right? An ideal family being where you actually are able to bring your full self to the table, knowing that whatever you bring, you will remain seen, valued, and protected, mm-hmm. right? And then the other half of that is this amazing thing that happens in recovery, which is that there are rules about how to listen to other people bringing their full selves to the table, okay? I think that one of the reasons we have so much trouble being honest, you know, bringing our pain to each other, it's not because we're wimps, it's because people suck at listening. Yes. And you, Layla, see this constantly in ways that are so damaging, but it's, it's incessant, it's everywhere, you know? People bring their pain and we just do not know how to handle other people's pain. We just, we have to dismiss it or we have to compare it to ourselves or we have to explain it away or we have to rationalize it or we have to not believe it or, you know, but in recovery, there are actual strict rules about how to listen, right? Like when somebody brings themselves and puts their heart out there, puts their pain out there, puts their dreams out there, whatever it is, there's no crosstalk. There's no dismissal. There's no, so it's the structure that liberates people to bring their full selves so they can finally breathe and be seen for the first time. So that is the model that I created at Momastery with, right? I mean, I am going to you, I am going to bring my full self to here. 
and then a decade in those in those comment sections in all of that of trying to get people to understand that you can feel whatever way you want to feel about this and still respond or not respond in ways that make that person feel seen, valued, and protected. Mm. Um, and so that, those, just those basic, you know, to me, that's it. It's like, what are we trying to do? We're trying to create an ideal family. What does that mean? It means I get to bring my full self to the table. You get to bring your full self to the table. And at the end of the day, we can all trust that we are going to be seen and valued and protected. Which is why, of course, there's, I mean, I can't not think about the race conversations that people are trying to have without thinking about recovery and our inability, first of all, our inability to face huge family secrets, right? Which aren't even secrets. They're out in the open, but we are. I mean, I don't know what to call them. <laughs> but yes, you're, it's like the secret that everyone knows, right? <laughs> right. That's corroding us, right. our souls and, our, and some people's bodies and all of our souls. And, our, you know, it's like, can we just take an honest moral inventory of our country and talk about the foundations that we were purported to be built upon, upon how we were actually built? And that, of course, that deep, dark, horrible family secret is going to cause unbelievable trauma, right? And then, like, can we allow people, all people, to bring themselves fully to our table and listen to the personal experience of, of people of color, of, 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 of trans people, of queer people, of all the people in our country who've been oppressed? And, and can we allow them to bring themselves to the table? Can we listen, right? Like, without crosstalk, without dismissal, without comparing, without all of these things that we use. And then if we can do that, we get to this place where the only way forward is true apology and full amends. Mm. Right? Like there are amends to be made that are real, that are tangible, that are, and it's like, I, I, I can just, see this, there's a way forward. Like this is the way lives heal. This is the way that families heal. This is the way that a nation can heal, but it's never going to happen if we just try to skip over everything. Right. Right. If we just say, okay, actually, yeah, that happened, but you know what, let's just get on with it. And and can I say as well, just to, sorry to cut you off there because I'm, you know, we, we were talking about sobriety and I remember in your, in your book, love warrior, you know, how, um, difficult it was for your family, um, when you were, uh, struggling with alcohol addiction, um, how difficult it was for them to see you do the things that you were doing in the way that it was harming them. Um, And the reason I bring this up is because in your recovery, I am sure that you had to apologize. You had to make amends. You couldn't just say, well, that was what I did when I was uh, an alcoholic, but now I'm sober. So we can just, we don't, we don't need to talk about any of that. We can just skip, skip on to the nice part now. Gorgeous. That is so true. Of course. And, and you don't have to be an alcoholic to relate to that. I mean, right. How many people have ever gotten, you know, truly hurt someone, hurt their partner, hurt their child, hurt their, as we do, 
mm-hmm. and then gone to them and said, you know what? That was like three days ago. Let's just move on. Love and light. You know, like that will never work. Like we can't, it doesn't work in our personal relationships. So why on earth would it work on a wider, you know, within a wider relationship, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I really, I really love when you, when you started, you said, I started with a commitment to no shame and no secrets. Yeah. Um, because what I, what I am finding as I'm exploring, what does it mean to be a good ancestor? I'm finding for myself that it's really important. And this is, you know, with the, with the guidance of my mentor as well, it's really important for me to have a written manifest manifesto, like written guidelines, rules, principles for how I'm going to live my life that I cannot just leave it to chance. Um, that I can, that, that I have to have something, um, solid, a place within me where I know who I am so that no matter what the circumstances, I show up the same way. And I've seen, I've, I've seen different interviews with you and I've talked to you when we're not in an interview. Right. Mm -hmm. And it appears to me, you just show up the same way every time. Um, and so the reason that I think this is important, first of all, anyone who's, who's in this work of exploring for themselves, what does it mean to be a good ancestor? I just think it's really important to have like simple, but really powerful rules for how I'm going to show up in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and then don't let the world change them. Yes. Listen, Layla, I, this was tested for me big time when I decided to leave my husband and marry Abby six weeks before my marriage redemption book was about to hit the country. Right? I literally had to have meetings with all of the people who were involved in the success of this book. People's careers were dependent upon it um, and tell them that I was leaving. And, and, and it wasn't, I mean, they begged me not to tell until after it was like, an, an unbelievable debacle. But this, when you have your list, when you know, and these are basic, basic things. These are not really basic, really like, yes. I don't have a business plan to save my life. Right. Right. I just know that I can't keep secrets. Like they made me really, really sick. And like, if, if revealing a secret um, and we all, we all have to navigate the difference between privacy and secrets. I mean, I have a family, like I, I know I have to navigate that, but, but I also think we all know the difference yeah. when it comes down to it. A, a secret is about who you are, you know, like hiding something about who you are, like who God made you to be. Um, but I knew like, if, if this secret, if this thing is supposed to take my career out, then okay. Then that just means that this is this, my career wasn't supposed to go this way. You know, so, and I also knew that what I had been working so hard to create in this community was an ideal family, not a fake family. Mm. Meaning I could bring this part of myself to this community and whether or not they got it or understood, that was not the point. That's never the point. The point is the only rule is that you bring your whole self to the table. And then the other rule is no matter how I feel about that, you are seen and valued and protected. Yeah. And that's what happened. The, 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 my community, you know, I remember my friend saying to me after I announced it and the, the response was so beautiful. 
I remember a friend saying, you know what, it's like you've been creating this community for 10 years that you would one day need to fall into. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like that's how it works, right? And it's so funny because I had not been familiar with you prior to seeing you on Oprah and, and hearing about your book club where I had not been familiar with your work until that point. So I didn't know about what you had been writing about, who you were, what you were about. But I just remember watching that Oprah interview and just having an immediate sense of respect um, for somebody who is very clear in how she's, she's going to live her life, even if it means coming on Oprah and saying this thing. Oh, yeah. And Oprah was the one who, I mean, she was a warrior for the truth. She mm-hmm. was. It was, the, it was the national Christian women tour that I was on at the moment that had some big <laughs> The feelings. Christian mommy blogger tour? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, full circle. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> right. But in, but in the face of absolutely uh, just everyone, right, uh, mm-hmm. saying this is not a good idea, you are going to lose things, big things, money, relationships, um, all kinds of things. But you were clear in what my mentor says to me, I define myself for myself. Mm -hmm. And I I only center my definition of myself. I do not center other people's perception of how I'm supposed to be in the world. That's exactly right. And and just like we are always changing, if we're doing it right, all of the outsides of us will change too. The, the things, if, if I have discovered something that is true, whether it's okay, I'm not the person that I thought I was, I'm a white moderate and then, you know, whether, so now I'm going to start speaking about that, whether it's okay, I'm in love with a woman. Now this is, this is my truth. Whatever I lose because I've stepped into that place, I was meant to lose. Mm. That's like the pruning of the, like, if, if we have anything because of a fake version of ourselves, we don't really have that thing. That's why people live in fear so much because they have to keep acting to keep this thing that is only there because of the act. Yeah. Right. So let me continue to figure out what's next for me and whatever I have to lose to step into that um, next version of myself, then let me lose it Mm. so I can travel light. It's, I felt light just as you said that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm definitely someone who is continuously in my work, like you said, a lifelong student, continuously stripping back layers, finding new parts of myself. And I find that um, the more I strip away the layers of uh, like needing to perform for other people. So needing to be this like perfect leader, this like has it all together, knows all the answers, doesn't struggle with her own self-doubt or whatever that is, right? Mm -hmm. The more I strip away those layers, like it feels more raw, but it then feels lighter because then I'm Mm -hmm. not having to remember you got to play this role, right? Yeah. Don't forget. Right? <laughs> Don't yeah, forget. You, you can't like lose it. it. Right. Yeah. Then you can't, you lose it. Then you get to just show up for your, who, as who you are all the time. Because, because what you've built is based on, I will be who I am in any given moment. And that is literally all I can promise you. 
Right. And isn't that, that's, that's like, that just made me smile, a big smile. That last part, that's all I can promise you. Mm -hmm. That's it. Nothing more. Nothing more. (laughs) That is it, Layla. But that's everything. The reason why that's everything is because, especially for people who, like we talk about, who have a platform or whatever we want to call that, it's because that's all other people want too. Mm -hmm. So we think they want this like shiny version of ourselves but that's not what they want. They want freedom to show up wherever they are, however they are. Yeah. And so when they see another woman doing that, they're like, oh, that, that looks like living with less fear. Right. Beautiful. Oh, Glennon, this conversation has been all kinds of wonderful. Oh, I um, agree. I've really enjoyed it. And you've really given me some nuggets that are going to stick with me, especially that last part. <laughs> Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to write that down because that's really going to stick with me. Um, where can people find you and get, like, what are your books so that they can purchase them? Just remind us of that. Okay, well, everyone probably wants Test Talk. <laughs> just <joking. laughs> I'm just joking. Who's published um, that? Can you just remember? <laughs> it's super good, you guys. It's super good. Um, Okay. Uh, love, uh, Carry On Warrior was my first memoir. Love Warrior was my last memoir. Um, and let's see, I'm just on Twitter, on um, Instagram at Glennon Doyle and all the other places, Facebook and Twitter. And Together Rising is my baby. So check out Together Rising. That's our nonprofit. That's just, uh, it's, I really think that every word that I write or speak is really about Together Rising. Yeah, I really appreciate the work that you do through there. And I know I've um, supported some of the campaigns that you've done through there as well. Oh, thank yeah. you, Layla. Thank you. Um, thank you for your work in the world. You're just utterly amazing. And I hope that you keep showing up exactly as you are, wherever you are forever. Thank you. Um, okay, our final question. Um, Glennon, what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? I want to create um, inside my home, inside all of my little little spheres of influence in my communities, a place where my children, their children, your children, their children, all children can begin to show up and bring their full selves to the table knowing that they will be seen and valued and protected. That's it. That resonated very deeply with me. Thank you. Thank you, Layla. I hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights and find deeper answers to what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to hear what some of your aha moments have been from this conversation. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at at Good Ancestor Podcast. And drop us a comment to let us know what some of your biggest takeaways have been. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.